at the end of the day, no one is going to get better if you over-medicate, if you put them to work physically, if your punishments are so severe that you actually end up physically hurting them. They're not going to learn anything from that. They're going to be worse coming out than they were went in. Welcome to Mad Waters, one family's story from both sides of the mental health system and our search to find those fixing it. I'm Adrienne Seifert. And I'm Michael Seifert. And the voice you just heard was our daughter's, whose experiences inspired our pursuit of something better. Too many patients, overworked staff, increased safety protocols due to COVID, and a for-profit hospital seeing profit margins narrowing. The result was a dwindling of options for individuals with intractable and refractory psychiatric conditions like paranoia and chronic self-harm. Other patients were being funneled through jails or ended up homeless. They would then decompensate, stop taking their medications, and end up back at the hospital. A revolving door of psychiatric care. The year brought into sharp relief the fault lines of psychiatric institutions. And the question that came out of this was, can hospital administrators, the ones concerned with the bottom line, can they share the same purpose as the caretakers, the ones concerned with the patients? Can leaders meet their business goals and still support their staff with compassion and meaningfully? Because if they can't, then everyone loses. But the ones who suffer most are, without a doubt, the patients. I'm Michael Seifert. And I'm Adrian Seifert. And this is Mad Waters. I began my tenure as CMO at about 10 months into the pandemic. I had a relatively full complement of physicians and mid-level practitioners. In six months, we would go through multiple COVID-19 outbreaks in the hospital. Staff got ill or were quarantined, others took family medical leave, and in the end, we lost more than half our psychiatric physicians and a third of our advanced psychiatric nurse practitioners. As the chief medical officer, working an action plan in the end meant asking for more. I asked for more psychiatric staff, asked remaining staff to work more hours, to cover more units, to work extra weekends. Yet in the end, all these actions felt like moving deck chairs on the Titanic. No matter how much more we did, the staffing numbers continued to dwindle month after month, and by summer we hit critical staffing shortages as staff started resigning. Bickering among staff members led to poor morale and staff absenteeism. Patient care suffered. When our second psychiatric physician, a former military person like myself, left in as many months, I took it personally. I was failing to keep the proverbial ship afloat. I asked him to level with me. Don't you get it, Mike, he said. It's nothing you or I or anyone can do. Our voices just don't matter. And this is concerning for reasons particular to behavioral health. The Therapeutic Alliance. A lot of education, training, and research has surrounded these two words. The American Psychological Association defines it as a cooperative working relationship between client and therapist that is considered by many to be an essential aspect of successful therapy. See, unlike a procedure 
setting a broken bone, stitching a cut, performing a CT scan, the invisible bonds that form between the practitioner and patient, they themselves have come to be seen as essential to any successful treatment. And although it is harder to create that alliance in inpatient settings, it is no less important. And I would argue that alliance is really built on empathy, and not just between the patient and the provider, but between the staff. Yet everything becomes virtually impossible when conditions in which practitioners are working are toxic. And though there is never a single cause for a hostile or fraught workplace, I can say that as a practitioner, parent, and most recently as CMO, making money seems contrary to that mission. So let me give you an example. In just about all the residential treatment facilities where we, as the parents, were unable to see our child and the progress that was or was not made, there almost always was a reason to extend her stay. And at between 10000 and 16000 a month... And there are places that can run up to $30,000 a month, all out of pocket. It is impossible not to see the conflict of interest. Because when it comes to behavior, it is much harder to measure improvement. That is not to say that there are not questionnaires or other so-called diagnostic instruments, but they are often not used, or in many cases, they're used incorrectly. So making a case to have a patient stay longer, it's an easy one to make. Especially if you're hiding behind HIPAA. Inpatient is a slightly different animal. No margin, no mission. That was the cry of my CEO. Like many other psychiatric facilities, ours had a capitation model with a 1.5% margin, which barely covered costs. To keep these operating margins less in the red meant that the focus was on keeping patient census high while paying less for salaries, less nurses, or inexperienced ones, and skimping on infrastructure. These facts of life meant that staffing would always be a problem, which led to excessive workloads and the risk of workplace violence and medical errors. Those are the facts. Harder to measure is the impact on morale, or maybe not. The resignation of a sizable number of staff in a short period of time is pretty good evidence. But what about the patients? I know as a mother, when I'm stressed or pushed for time, Nervous about my safety, I simply cannot show the empathy and love and caring that I want to. Simply put, caring takes time. But it is vital, and we have seen it make all the difference. For example, we were heartsick when Christmas, New Year's, and worse, birthdays came around, and our child was in a place where there was no family and no real friends. We worked to mitigate this by sending presents, a cake, decorations, even a set of holiday movies and a projector for everyone to watch them at one point. But we knew it was a pale comparison to what she could have had with us. So when the owner-director of a treatment center drove a group of friends to our child's favorite restaurant and then to a nearby beach to celebrate that birthday, I practically cried with happiness and relief. For almost anyone, this kind of personal attention shows the kind of compassion that no therapeutic intervention alone can make. It makes someone feel seen, 
feel important, feel worthy, and that is irreplaceable. So the question is, how do we replicate caring on a large scale in hospitals, in clinics, in psychiatric facilities to allow patients to engage in that all-important empathic connection? Does it have to start at the top? Does the culture have to change within the organization? What community partnerships can support this mission? Can technology play a role? And how do we leverage the growing telehealth industry to help people get the mental health services they so desperately need? Our guest today has looked at questions like these on a global scale. Professor Akhtar Badshah is a social entrepreneur who has launched a number of socially relevant organizations, starting with Digital Partners Foundation, a Seattle-area nonprofit whose mission was to utilize the digital economy to benefit the poor. For 10 years, he led Microsoft's global philanthropic effort administering the company's community investment and employee programs. Dr. Badshaw is an internationally recognized expert on social impact, philanthropy, and international development. He is also an artist, architect, author, and educator. His new book, Purpose Mindset, How Microsoft Inspires Its Employees and Alumni to Change the World, tells the inside story behind how Microsoft built and continues to foster its culture of giving. Welcome, Dr. Badshaw. It is an honor to have you with us. Thank you very much, Michael and Adrian. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Professor, for those of us who don't know, can you tell us about Microsoft's giving program and how it started? Yeah, so as those of us that live in the Seattle area know that Bill Gates' family, mother Mary Gates and father Bill Gates Sr., were very active in the in the community here, generous, leading several initiatives and organizations. And Bill, Bill Gates, grew up in that environment where he would stand at street corners with placards with his father, lick envelopes for his mother as she was mailing out uh, fundraising requests. So philanthropy was something that he was exposed to and used to. And as the company grew, still in its very formative and early years, Mary Gates kept challenging his son to at least start a payroll deduction program in support of United Way in King County, which they did in 1983. And that raised about $17,000. Mary Gates was very crucial to really wanting to inculcate a community of generosity in his son's company. In 1985, Bill Newcomb joins as the chief legal officer. And as part of his portfolio, which included legal affairs, He also wanted to start government affairs, industry affairs, corporate affairs, and community affairs. And community affairs was very important because 
build newcomb and also come in from that space of providing pro bono legal services to community based organizations and what he quickly realized was that here were these young 20 something working 18 hour days trying to change the world through technology but they will be and they will settle down in this community establish roots here get married here have kids here and that there has to be a way by which the company exposes them to the community and the philanthropic program started with that genesis of a matching gifts program where employees were able to donate to a non-profit of their choice which the company then matched so that's the genesis of the program and how it started in 1985 and you fast forward now it is a massive program at scale i am curious what did the employees think of the program initially and what do they think of it now so it's hard to know what the employees thought about it then but as bill newcomb predicted as they got more established in the community started going out started understanding causes then it spread and then you actually started seeing you know organizations like planned parenthood the nature conservancy people started taking interest in issues and then started donating towards that now when you fast forward even then it became very clear that this was very unique what microsoft was doing was very unique they were doing it in a very unique way they were doing it in a very fun way you it used to be a competition people would jump into the lake they would have you know they would do dunking and they would do all sorts of things to kind of get people motivated to give and today it's part of the dna i mean one of the folks that i interviewed bill hilf who is the head of vulcan said that you know in other companies giving was expected at microsoft it was a privilege to participate and that i thought was a great distinction in terms of how microsoft set it up where it was engaged and involved rather than it being expected i just want to do a follow up to that because you know it's obvious that it benefited you know in so many ways the organizations that got those funds but i'm you know curious and expect that it probably had a even greater impact in some ways on the culture of the company yes and you know i mean this became the calling card right i mean even today and there are so many people who leave microsoft and go to other companies and many of them come back because they find this benefit crucial to their existence which i think just shows that if you motivate people you can inculcate purpose and help develop a purpose mindset absolutely and i'm also want to build on that professor building a sense of altruism in what is arguably a privileged environment um and a 
well-known international company. But I'm wondering if it has lessons uh, for companies who aren't as well-known or in other civic organizations, um, public works, and how to build an altruistic organization. So you have to remember in 1985, the company was a very small company. I, it wasn't that well known. You know, I mean, nobody really knew. I mean, people who joined Microsoft at that time, you know, parents would say, what is wrong with you? Why are you going there? Where is Seattle? What is Microsoft? So, but by starting at that early stage, they did take a risk, right? By being so generous, whether they would actually be able to become the size of the company that they are now. But I think the more important thing to me was the engagement, was the involvement, was the opportunity for individuals to get connected to their community. This became a motivator, a catalyst for people to get engaged. And money became a driver. But there are lots of different ways that companies can do by providing time off, by providing small incentives. But these incentives are very important because we spend a lot of our time at work. And today in this virtual environment, we spend even more time at our work. So the ability for individuals to get connected to their community and show up in the community as contributing members, whatever that contribution looks like, is critical. And it is something that any company can emulate. And that's how you build a culture of inclusivity. So it is very important to kind of look at even small companies can do that. And these are very minimal things you can do. So I know that you're an expert at using IT to help uh, emerging socially relevant companies. Um, and I know that uh, COVID-19 um, really uh, changed many things um, for all of us, especially in healthcare. Um, you know, it really expanded telehealth in a way that no one could have expected um, prior to that. But I am wondering if you think there are other technological innovations that came out of this that might improve health, mental health, you know, engagement or outcomes. Things had to shift dramatically. And technology did play a role. I mean, of course, I mean, you know, I haven't seen my doctor in over a year and a half because it's all been telemedicine now. And that access has increased participation. It has also increased other kinds of conversations that could be had, which has included mental health. People became more acutely aware of that. And now what you're seeing is so many companies creating innovative solutions to address health-related situations through technology. And the other thing it did was that people who would have normally not used technology 
are now using it because we were forced to. And that has made us a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more open. And we are seeing this across the world in even rural communities and even communities where internet access is not as reliable. So what is happening on top of that is lots of different innovations that are driving additional efforts to go deeper in terms of what services can be provided and this notion that the service can go to an individual versus the individual coming to the service. Right? Our whole world was we go out, we go shopping, we go here, we go there. Now it's actually flipped. Services come to us. And technology has made it possible. And I see many more innovative solutions that will happen. Now, of course, we are, you know, social beings. And we do want to be able to interact and we do want to be able to go out. But this has also become a benefit for a lot of people who otherwise are not able to go out and not able to access these services. So I think that that's the shift that I see happening is services are now coming to you. And that process started long time ago with the internet and with all of these companies, but it did get accelerated because of COVID. Hmm. Yeah, I am reminded um, of the program or the business, Noom, an online health service that is designed to help people manage their diabetes through kind of positive health and behavioral steps that use psychological techniques like motivational interviewing. Do you think that these kinds of online programs are able to help both individuals and perhaps corporations that are dealing with individuals with mental health problems? So, I mean, Noom is a very interesting example, right? I mean, there is a Fortune of Forbes article on how Noom, which is a weight loss company, tapped into mental health behavior modeling as a way to promote itself and rather than just a weight loss effort. And they built such a huge following. The other thing that, Michael, what you are pointing out, which I think is actually very interesting, is HR in companies always recognized mental well-being as being critical. But they weren't actually able to provide the right level of services just because of all of the other issues involved with it, confidentiality, whether you ask somebody this. But with what happened during COVID and the rise of these new companies, I believe that it is going to become much more formalized and institutionalized in companies as part of a service that gets provided. And I'm so glad you brought this up because um, this sort of gets to a larger question about stigma. And I imagine that what you might have been referring to with regards to HR is that 
certainly their HIPAA, you know, requirements. Um, but I would think that there might also be um, concerns around uh, stigma. And I'm wondering whether you saw that in your work uh, with Microsoft or in other corporations, and maybe how now uh, with the advent of, um, you know, sort of being able to do this in a private space, um, whether that might also lead to um, a change in the corporate environment? So, I mean, you know, I mean, I wasn't in that space to really firsthand experience, but let's just look at how we even talk today. How are you doing was more a conversation starter rather than a concern of are you okay? So today it's becoming acceptable to ask those questions. And therefore, people are willing to then say, I'm not doing well. I am not feeling, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I'm however they want to frame it. Right? So, so, so those things are slowly opening up. Now, one also has to be careful that you know, we live in a diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic society in the U.S. And obviously, if you look at it around the world, and there are certain conversations that still have stigma attached to it. And how do you open that up? Right. So it works within a particular class of society, but you can't really go out and talk about many of these things openly, which is why I think technology provides that certain veneer of distance and privacy that allows you to say, I can seek help, or I might even see this as something that one normally does, like going for a walk or exercising or eating food or however you want to think about it. So I think those transitions, I believe, will take place. Yeah, I, I think I'd like to build on that because I think you're absolutely right. I think by having more of this empathic engagement in the workplace, in the, the school and university sphere, uh, we are learning to talk and communicate in a different way. Um, and what I also see are people who are gravitating towards technologies that you mentioned, Calm or Headspace, that are actually using meditation terminology, terminology of stress reduction to help them find different words for the stress that they feel. Um, and I think that that is likely to be a trend that continues and perhaps grows. Uh, and I wanted to get your feedback on that. No, I mean, I think that clearly, I mean, things changed, right? But it, but it's not as if it, it did change overnight, but this has also been a gradual movement. Like we have been on this treadmill of growth and the growth mindset and that everything has to lead to growth and scale and competition. And there is only 
at some point, people kind of feel burnt out. And there's only so much you can run fast all the time. You can't. So COVID gave us that abrupt stop and the opportunity to reflect. But the conversations around purpose and purpose in life and meaning in life are not new. It is something that has been going on for a very long time, except now people are sitting up and recognizing it and saying that it doesn't have to be either or. I don't have to give up work and then go do service to be happy. I should be able to have both in that same environment. And companies are also starting to recognize that. I didn't, earlier that recognition was we should all have a purpose statement, we should make these grand announcements and pronouncements. But now people are actually saying that, you know, there is still a disconnect between what companies say and how it gets implemented. And employees are demanding more. And by demanding more, you're actually now seeing that shift. And that is getting reflected in this great resignation, the great reshuffle, where people are tired and are now taking the opportunity and say, if you are not going to respect me in the workplace, the way I want to be treated and respected, I will go find something else to do. Yes. As a recent job as a CMO of a large behavioral health care hospital, I have firsthand experience of this loss of compassion um, and lack of empathy. When I further explored this, these concepts, these related concepts, what I got back from people was the reason that they had enough was that lack of feeling hurt, that they could deal with a lot of the stress and strain of COVID, of longer hours and more shift work. But when they conveyed a concern, right, not even for themselves, but for the, their patients, that wasn't listened to in a way that kind of broke that trust. And I'm wondering, can you imagine ways that we can expand empathy or compassion in the work environment? If organizations and companies and healthcare institutions and educational institutions don't recognize that, people are willing to risk with choice. Because what we were all confronted with in some form or the other was either terrible sickness or death. And people are saying, hey, I need to stop. And even if it means a temporary setback financially, I'm willing to do that because the other outcome may be I might just not be alive. And we were never thinking of that that way. And that might be a fatalistic attitude, but it is something that people have seen, right? I mean, there isn't, there are very few people I, that may have been completely untouched by this, by not having a family member, a friend, or somebody that they know that has either had this and is suffering with long-term consequences or have passed away. And these are just recalibrating moments for the world. And it is very 
heartening to see so many people actually take the time for recalibration. I, I love that term, the need for recalibration, because in a way, um, we are and have for many of us and those of us haven't survived the inconceivable. For those of us left with what is arguably can be described as not one, but several black swan events. You know, the question is, what can we do as a society to help potentially leverage whatever data we have to better serve those people who are falling through the cracks? And I was struck by your own work at Restart Partners and how you were able to, with your team, leverage public health data and link it to targeted public service announcements to enhance decision-making, and this was, I think, surrounding COVID. Is there a space or place for that in times of, let's say, mental health crises? I think we should be doing it, right? I mean, how do we go out and really make, I mean, I think that the, so here's the thing, right? Michael and Adrian, you get a fracture, you don't sit at home and hide it. You go to the doctor to get it fixed. A mental fracture, we tend to hide it because it is a sign of weakness. And what we are all now trying to come to terms with, that it is not a weakness. It is just a fracture and it needs to get healed. And the more we talk about it in those terms of giving people space, I mean, nobody, you know, questions somebody wearing a boot. They'll say, oh, what happened? Oh, you know, I had an ankle sprain and a fracture and I'm now hobbling and people actually say, oh, great, let me make space for you. Can I carry your tray? You know, why don't you sit down? I will help you because that's visible. With mental health, it is invisible. And we are all at fault, right? I mean, all of us. We don't recognize the signs. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know what to do. We kind of just say it's all in your head. Just shake it out. And we're all culprits of that. But the more we can educate through public service announcements, through active ways of getting messaging out and right. I think this is the opportunity. I think organizations, companies like Noom and Headspace and Calm and others are doing it because they see a potential financial opportunity. But from a societal space, we need to take that same approach and say, let's get the conversation right. And I think the opportunities are to start that conversation early, right, in classrooms and schools, and some schools are doing it, right, a meditation class. Hey, we're not going to punish you. We're actually going to go have you do a yoga or meditation and just calm down. Just very interesting ways to kind of think about it. Yeah, our daughter has a, a compassion day. Uh, and they talk about this kind of social-emotional language, which is a, a change, and I believe a good one. Yeah. I 
I know that it wasn't there when we were going to school, so that's pretty <laughs> neat. I want to go back to your book, Purpose Mindset. And I absolutely love how you have taken that word purpose and really allowed us to look at it and to feel it and to understand it um, in that context. And I'm wondering if you can just share with us how you see purpose as being the catalyst for change. So I kind of start off with this quote from Leo Rothstein, who passed away in 1997, a humorist, a screenwriter, a political scientist, who said that I cannot believe that the purpose of life is to be happy. I think the purpose of life is to be useful, to be responsible, to be compassionate. It's above all to matter, to count, to stand for something, to have made some difference that you have lived at all. Every one of us is here because there is a particular reason. It is the why. And we don't give people enough space to ask, let them ask the why. We push our kids into careers. We basically say, are you going to be a doctor? Or are you going to be an engineer? Are you going to be a scientist? Are you going to be an entrepreneur? Are you going to be, I don't know, pick a craft. What we don't have a conversation around is who do you want to serve? In service of whom? And once you get that in service of somebody, then how you go about it is a very different conversation. So for me, purpose is that very central core to your being. And what I ask people is to just talk about it. Why are you here? What do you really want to do? Write it down. Not everything that you do will always be fulfilling. But if there are things that you do that align at times with your purpose and you are aware of that, then you are much more contented. You discover more meaning in what you're doing. And then that's when you light up. Right? I mean, darkness today is all about lighting up that inner switch. And if you can put people in that position where they can light up that inner switch, then you're getting people to reignite their purpose. Everybody has a purpose. It's, are we getting them to articulate it? And purpose changes over time. And that's the journey we want people to be on. And purpose then introduces the trinity of the community. I, I exist for what I do and for whom. It's the self, the work, and the community. Growth is the duality between self and work. And that's the transition we want people to have is how do we get them to think about every action you take 
what does it mean for the greater good? Even if it means that you are in for making a money, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's the how and why that becomes important. Well said. And I wanted to build on that. Uh, I think for every human being, learning that purpose and lighting that switch is hugely important. But I also want to kind of ask you a question in terms of leadership. And, you know, there's this idea that a lot of leaders have different styles and that much of leadership is in a way transactional, but that when we go into an organization or we're part of an organization, we are there to serve others. And yet often it's been my experience within just this realm of healthcare industry that often that idea of serving others, that purpose is drowned out by these other kind of more practical mundane concerns. Yeah, I mean, you know, we are in this interesting, I mean, COVID really reminded us of where we've come from. I, you go into the medical space to serve. I, I mean, that's your oath that you take. But then everything gets surrounded, which is the prosaic, as you said it, Michael. And if leadership then becomes more attuned to being a warrior leading from the front versus leading from behind. I think more and more people are talking about leading from behind because we are no longer at war. It's it, You have to lead from the front if you are at war. But business leaders are not recognizing that there is an effective way to lead from the back. And today's society and today's culture and today's youth, not everyone, want that. And transitioning to that is really where the challenge is. Right? So we still have people that are charging, you know, it's win at all costs, it's me. And we are seeing it played out in our society today. Right, that we've got this fracture, but we need to be able to heal and we need to be able to create these bridging networks rather than just bonding networks, these bridging networks that allow us to bridge over differences, over cultures, over customs, over religion, differences. And that requires a whole different set of work and leadership to make that happen. All I can do right now is make sure that it doesn't happen to anyone else. Even though maybe it's not the parents' fault, at the end of the day, you're taking something from that kid and it doesn't go away. I'm still trying to heal from it. And this is part of my healing process. I want to speak out about it. If you send someone to a facility and then that facility tells the parents, hey, your kid needs to go to this facility, they just get stuck in the system for life.
On November 20, 2012, I entered the Muskegon State Prison in Michigan to evaluate an inmate charged with three counts of felonious assault. It turned out to be one of the most bizarre cases I would ever encounter. The young man had escaped the clutches of Saddam Hussein and a Pakistani refugee camp. But his new country, America, had baffled him. For him, fleeing his country to come to this one had come with a steep price, anonymity. This, above all, ended up driving him to a self-imposed exile. He became, in a real sense, a modern-day hermit. That is, until moving day. Next time on Mad Waters.